Help us now, Heavenly Father, that in the darkness in our world and in our hearts, your word would shine like a light upon it as we look at the light of the world, your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. What I find hard about Christmas is the constant Santa-esque jolliness that is required for the next four whole weeks. Everything is merry this and jolly that. St. Nick is all ho, 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 but sometimes I just feel no, no, no. You know, the kids open the presents around the tree and by the time the 25th of December rolls around, I'm so sucked of joy that all I'm thinking is, I've got to recycle that paper. I've got to find batteries that fit these different toys. I've got to find glue to fix it when they drop it. And some, a few of the presents, I've got to hide those well so we can re-gift them for some kid's birthday in the next month or two. It wasn't always this way, of course. I was your usual wake-up-early, excitable child. But as you grow older and the global political climate and the global actual climate seem anything but happy... I find it hard to be so jolly. Instead of Santa, I wonder if a better fictional character for the next four weeks would be the seven dwarves, because at least one of them is called Grumpy, and we could join in with him. Even Santa, the the icon of happiness, needs a lift every so often, because that's why we leave out milk and cookies for him. We need a lift at this time of year. When we lived in the UK, where I'm from, it was because it was so dark and cold. But now we're living back here again, it's because we're too hot. It's the end of the year, we're tired, we're exhausted, it's been a strange year. We need a lift. And we show this in our language. We we talk of a glass of something as a pick-me-up. We'll watch some trash TV this Christmas for some downtime, which still really speaks of needing a lift. And after Christmas, to uh, relieve the guilt of Christmas excess, we'll have a dry January. We used to go on diets, but now we do a cleanse. Cleanse and guilt. For a non-religious society, it's remarkable how the language we use is, well, religious. Unraveling that around us there is a deeper lift that is needed a deeper hole that we need to be rescued from. And it's worth considering that we're not the only ones at this time in history. Our reading from Isaiah shows that they too, two and a half thousand years ago, were looking for a lift. It starts in verse 1, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. They wanted to receive a lift. Now, it promises it will be around Zebulun and Naphtali, which if you read Matthew's version of Jesus' life, once John the Baptist is put in prison, Jesus finally moves out of home. He's born in Bethlehem, he lives in Nazareth, but in his later years, as often happens in your 20s, he moves out of Nazareth and moves uh, eastward to Naphtali and Zebulun, to Galilee. And that's where this verse predicts that that will happen. Matthew 4:17 is where you'll see that come true. But that's the location, but the heart issues are the same. They were in anguish and they needed a lift. It carries on in verse 2. There is a light that is dawning in darkness, verse 2. There's a hunger, verse 3. But now it's like harvest time. 
Or it's like people are dividing a plunder. So the pirates have, have bombed the ship. They've grabbed the big uh, uh, chest of loot. They've now arrived on the island and they finally crack open the chest and it shines of gold and crowns. And that's the joy that this lift will provide in verse 3. For those under a yoke, a burden, it will be shattered, verse 4. Verse 5, armor used for battle will be used for firewood, in verse 5. An acquaintance of mine uh, was uh, part of the armed forces during the Northern Irish conflicts of the 80s and 90s. He took a friend and family to to go back to visit Northern Ireland to show him the barracks where he was stationed and fought. It was now a supermarket. That's the joy that these people will feel as armor used for battle will now be used for firewood. So we need to ask, why did these people then need a great lift? Was it, was it the weather getting them down? Well, no, this was all happening in ancient Israel. It, wasn't, it was by the Med. Weather wasn't a problem. In the bleak midwinter wasn't written uh, or sung at the first Christmas. Did they need a lift because of political issues? Well, yes, they did. There are 12 tribes in Israel, and 10 of the 12 have been ripped off to the north by the Assyrian army. So God is promising them a political lift. So is that what Christmas is for us today? A promise that politics will suddenly be okay? Well, no. In the Old Testament, the political and the spiritual were always linked Judah, the Jews, the God's nation, they were also his child. So how they acted spiritually was displayed in their performance politically. So the fact it wasn't looking good for them politically, horizontally, shows something that is wrong vertically, spiritually. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, it shows he's got royal blood, that passage from Luke. Says again and again, David's royal town. So he sounds political. But when he dies on a cross, he shows it's primarily spiritual. The lift being promised here isn't a lift for parliament, but for people. Not for our MP, but for ME, for me. Christmas means not just hope for the world despite its mess, but hope for you and me despite all our mess. And is it possible we're in the same hole that these Israelites have gotten themselves into? The hole of pride, of being the boss, of being in control, of dismissing God. It's the pride that means we make and then break our own rules. It's the pride that is seen as it seeps out in our Christmas newsletter as we humbly brag about all that we've done this year. And then as we read other people's Christmas newsletter or Instagram stories, we don't greet it with joy that they've had a great time, but jealousy that they're doing better than us. It's the pride that as we queue up at the checkout and notice that we brought our eco bags and someone down the aisle hasn't not brought their eco bags. It's that sort of pride that means we're in a hole, a hole that is filled with mirrors where every success echoes into arrogance, every failure resonates into despair, and we need to be lifted out of that hole because it's dark in there, because it's dark in here. 
These Israelites, like us, were proud. Proud enough to say, I don't need or want God as my father. I'll be fine on my own. So we, like them, need a lift. And it's very similar to theirs. Lifting from the burden, the yoke of the need to prove ourselves all the time. Lifting of darkness that comes from ignoring God as the true light. Lifting from a warring heart by finding peace with God rather than being enemies with him and others. Lifting of the spiritual hunger, the sort of hunger that that wants a cleanse and dry January guilt speak of but ultimately don't fulfill. We are in a hole and we can't get ourselves out. We need a lift And for that, secondly, we need a gift. We need a gift. Another thing I find hard about Christmas uh, is gifts. My boss, when I work for a church up the road, uh, tells the story of how his mother bought him two shirts for Christmas. So on Boxing Day, he wore one of them, to which his mother said, well, what was wrong with the other one? It's very hard to get gifts right. The word gift is actually kind of misleading nowadays. You know, stuff from Santa isn't a gift. It's only if you've been good, if you've worked for it, if you've earned it. It's not a gift, it's a wage from Santa. And I'm beginning to sense we aren't buying gifts for one another, but some sort of sentimentalized expectation of family. Because as the gifts come in, uh, the the requests, the, uh, the secret Santas, we begin to think, Not, I want to get them something, but I have to get them something. I have to get. But when God thinks of gift, he's primarily thinking here, I want to give them something. I want to give. And so these promises here of a lift come in the form of a gift. And it's not something, but someone. Verse 6. Have a look down at verse 6. You know it's key because it starts with that magic word, for. It's going to explain everything that's gone before it. Here is how the light comes. Here is how the burden is lifted. Here is how the, uh, the armory is turned into fuel for a fire. For a child to us is born. For us, a, a son given to us. It is given. It's a gift. Now, it takes 700 years to come true at the first Christmas which we may get impatient about. Uh, Asian philosophy and faith will say, I'm on a journey to God, and that can happen on our own timeline. But Middle Eastern and Western faith says, God's on a journey to me, and by the very nature of it, that happens on his time frame. Because it's his gift. Because it's his son. We think to ourselves, I have to get them something. God says, I I have to get them something. In fact, what they need is a someone. To us, a child has been born for us, a son given to us, and his authority. And the authority rests upon his shoulders, and he's named Wonderful Counselor. It's on his shoulders. So there's no longer a yoke on our shoulders because the ruling of the world is now on his And he'll counsel and console us well because he's like us, one of us. He's a wonderful counselor. 
as the uh, angel tree stuff happens, you've got to work out uh, who is the recipient so I can buy the right gift. What age? Uh, what gender? Is it a six-year-old boy, a nine-year-old girl? So you can match the gift appropriately. Well, God sees us as humans on this broken earth with struggles. So he matches the gift similarly as a human on this earth with our struggles. He's a wonderful counselor. He can help because this gift is identical to us. He is mighty God, everlasting Father. This is God on earth, which then changes our fundamental father-figure relationship to one that is perfect with God as our Father. And that will then bring peace as the Prince of Peace. If we make peace with God, then we can go out and make peace with everybody else. Then the world becomes better. As, verse 7, he rules with justice and righteousness. In England this time of year, we'd all be staring down the barrel of at least three or four nativity plays. Even if you haven't got kids and grandkids, you get roped into them somehow. And the real focus there seems to be on where Jesus is born. It's all about the innkeeper, who, as you read your Bible, you discover isn't actually there. But the real marvel here isn't where Jesus is born, but that Jesus is born. Here is God. He shouldn't be born at all. You see, Christmas isn't just about a birth, but a coming, an arrival, that all the expectation and preparation of the prophets has now come True. Luke 2 announces, a son is here. Even though everything in the Hebrew worldview militated against the idea that a human being could become God. Jews wouldn't even pronounce God's name, Yahweh. But the prophets are all about preparation and expectation. But they still weren't prepared or expecting Jesus. And yet Jesus Christ, by his life, his claims, by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers, who in their, what would they have called it, kids' temple, would have had Isaiah 9 on their minds, because that was one of the memory verses they had to remember to get their memory verse badge. That Jesus wasn't just a prophet telling them how to find God, but God himself to find us. The German monk Martin Luther, 500 years ago, who, as legend has it, was the first to bring uh, in a Christmas tree into his home, though at the time it was just called a tree. He understood the wonder of this gift of Jesus, because at Christmas 1527, he preached like this. If you would have joy, bend yourself down to this place. I will stay with that boy as he sucks, is washed, and dies. There is no joy but in this boy. Take him away and you face the majesty which terrifies. I know of no God but this one in the manger. What I think Martin Luther was saying 500 years ago is that without Jesus providing that internal, eternal, spiritual lift that connects us to God as father as his child, then we stay in a hole. And that dark hole gets deeper and darker as time goes on. In the end, lasting for an eternity. That this baby promised and then born describes that hellish existence of our own pride echoing back in the mirrors of our mind with no light 
which means our response to the gift of Jesus means more, perhaps, than we thought. You know, if the baby in the manger was just a Robin Hood-type figure of legend and myth, then sure, ignoring him, leading to eternal darkness, seems disproportional. But if we're ignoring Jesus, who's God, the gift, the wonderful counsel, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, then an eternal darkness is entirely in proportion. If Christmas is just a nice legend, in a sense, we are on our own in this world, in life and in death. But if this Advent, the prophets are right, then we are not on our own. We are owned and loved and in the light and lifted out of the pit because the government is on his shoulders now so the burden is no longer on mine. But for that to happen, we need thirdly and finally to have a shift. Now, the last thing I find hard about Christmas is receiving gifts. I've got a terrible present face. You know, you could give me a Caribbean island and I'd still have this fake look of, oh, thanks, that's what I've always wanted. It's really great. I've got a terrible present face. Partly now as a grown-up, there's no surprise as adults, is there? You know, we open a gift from our kid or grandchild and we know we were the one who clicked for it on Amazon. It was our debit card details that paid for it. We were the one who wrapped it, wrote their name fakely on it. And it's hard to pretend, oh, what a surprise. But I wonder, with this gift of the Bible, whether we can recover some of that childlike wonder again of not knowing what's going to happen. This is 700 years before Jesus, and it promises to us a child is born and a son is given. And then we fast forward 700 years and see it all come wonderfully true. One of the things, and many of us will miss this Christmas, is being with family. And I'm sure our kind of family WhatsApp groups will, will light up with various things around the Christmas season. And we'll try and reply and spend some time on Zoom and things like that with people that we can't reach. Uh, recently on our family WhatsApp uh, came some pictures of a TV show about 18 months ago, the, the, right at the beginning of, of COVID. Uh, some pictures behind the scenes of what ended up being the biggest TV show during the lockdown uh, in the UK and America that we got to see the beautiful scenery of this period drama and we got to see some of behind the scenes uh, in advance of it being released. And we got to see some of the, the cameras and, and lighting. We got to see the main characters uh, being silly when the camera wasn't rolling. We got to see some of the crew behind the scene that never make it on camera, uh, uh, listening to the sound and things like that. We got to see the, the background characters mucking around in a break between someone's lines and things like that. Now, how is it that my family was able to get ahead of time all this information, all this news, all the, uh, the expectation and preparation for when the TV show was finally released and then became the biggest around the world? How was it? Well, if you watch right to the end, you see the big bit of news, which is that, that a couple gets married. We get to see the great news at the end of it all. But if you keep watching right to the end and watch the credits, my name's Ed Surrey. If you watch right to the end, you'll see that one of the credits is Tim Surrey that the reason my family gets to see ahead of time is because my brother was on set. In fact, that was him. Now, why do I tell you that story? Partly so you'll be slightly impressed by the fact I know people in Hollywood. Uh, but mainly to say that, th that the reason I can trust that, that show is because I know the guy who's on set. 
that what he expects and prepares me for will be what we see on the screen. And that's what the prophets are doing. Now, again and again, my brother has shown us footage from behind the scenes of right back to uh, 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 Dunkirk, he did, and a few other big Hollywood movies. And then when you see it on the silver screen and it comes true, we can begin to trust him. Well, we have, as it were, a big brother on the set of the history of the world in Isaiah chapter 9, and he's sending us footage from before it happens. And then as it comes true in Luke chapter 2, we know we can trust it. The wonder of the prophets is that they go ahead of themselves, behind the scenes for us. That they are a close family member who tells the family WhatsApp group what's going to happen. And it shows us we need a lift and that there's a gift. So how do we then receive it? I did a psychology degree and uh, I I thought they were going to teach us how to read people's minds. But sadly that wasn't the case. I thought if they did do that, the exam would be really easy. You just read the guy's mind at the front and they find out the answers. It wasn't that. But there was a guy we studied called Carl Jung. He was pronounced, but it's spelt Jung, and I'm not quite sure why. And he was the kind of one of the founders of psychoanalysis, the, the thing where you lie on the bed and tell people your dreams and your stories, and then from that you can work out what all the problems are. And uh, he, Carl Jung tells this, uh, a conversation between two rabbis. A rabbi, I, I used to think it was the plural of the word rabbit. It's not. It's a Jewish teacher. A rabbi was talking to another rabbi, and the first rabbi says, uh, why, why does God need, no longer seem to show up? To which the second rabbi answered, there's no longer anyone who can bow low enough. If pride is the problem, the hole we've gotten ourselves into, then humility, what the rabbi called bowing low enough, is part of the answer. It's the act of the wise men who leave their thrones and identity, all they have, and come and bow before a new king. If the only lift is the gift, then there needs to be a a shift. That is, the Christian faith is not a negotiation, but a surrender. And our greatest motive for surrendering to King Jesus cannot be, oh, this is what he'll do in my life but out of love for him, what he has done for my life and death in his coming and living and dying and rising and reigning. So we must drop our conditions. That is, we don't say, I will obey if. That's not obedience at all. But we are saying to the king in the manger, you are not my advisor, you are my Lord. We must shift ourselves off the throne And then God will work that strange miracle of making us both more like Jesus and simultaneously more like our truest, best selves. As we rise out of the dark hole and embrace the light, the mirrors we were once surrounded by become windows to see others. That is what Jesus calls us to this Christmas. What the prophets predict will happen and do. Nothing less. A shift off the throne and Jesus rightly installed as king. It's right there in verse 7. His authority, not ours, shall grow continually. Then there'll be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. He is the king. There's only one throne. His kingdom is going to be bigger and better than ours. So we need to shift ourselves off the throne. 
and trust Jesus to be king. And we, the church, cannot expect to see it in the world until the world can expect to see it in the church. Now, how is that going to happen? How can we trust that this is going to come true? The last two lines, the last line of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. This is what God really wants for Christmas, for us all to come and receive this gift by dying to self, having the gift of life from the everlasting King Jesus. His zeal will do it. He really wants it. It's the only thing on his Christmas list. Because when we look at our Christmas list, we think, oh, I have to get them something. But the closest God says is, I have to get them. I have to get them. That's his zeal. That's the thing he wants. I have to get them. I will give them my son. That I can get them to be my child. I have to get them. I'll pray. Gracious Lord, help us to realize our need for a lift and to accept the gift by having a shift off the throne. When we find that hard, help us to cry out for you in prayer. Amen.